Today's show is brought to you by the new podcast, Dog Smarts. Each episode features leading researchers and academics that tackle the questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to our dogs. Subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. Today's episode is also brought to you by Ritani. Are you buying an engagement ring? Check out Ritani. Shop online, and your ring is made in New York and sent to you or a local jeweler. It's that easy. To check out their free diamond giveaway, go to ritani.com slash useful today. Today's episode will be helpful to anyone spending most of the weekend outdoors. Board-certified allergist Bob Gang stopped by to talk about air purifiers and at-home allergy fixes. We tried out a shirt that prevents pit stains. And general manager and beverage director of New York City Italian restaurant Burano stops by to tell us all about his family's mushroom farm. Did you know there's such a thing as spore poisoning? Sounds crazy. Finally, in case your barbecue is the fancy kind, the guys from Rappahannock Oyster Company came to the office to tell us how to shuck an oyster. It ended up being both easier and more complicated than we expected. Happy Memorial Day, guys. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. We have with us here today Dr. Bob Gang, who is a board-certified allergist with UC San Diego. Thanks, Jackie, for having me. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about allergies because I actually, I think that I've developed them recently, but everyone else I know has allergies, basically, and I don't really understand them. Um, so can you explain to our listeners what an allergy is? Well, Jackie, you're in really good company because I would say about a third of the population in North America suffer from some form of allergies, whether it's uh, nasal allergies, eye allergies, uh, food allergies, or asthma, allergic asthma, or skin allergies. So I think you're in very good company. And unfortunately, the rate of um, allergic conditions are on the rise in most of the developed world and even in some parts of the developing world as well. So it's good because it's good job security for me, but, so, <laughs> but unfortunately um, we have a new set of challenges that we have to deal with. And I think um, it's, uh, it's one of those things where you're absolutely right. There's different gradations. There's mild, moderate, and then a lot of sufferers have severe uh, symptoms as well. And uh, we don't really know the exact answer why allergy rates are on the rise or why people develop allergies. Part of it is uh, genetically related. So then if you have family members, a strong family history of allergic disease, you're more predisposed to developing it. And also we believe that society is getting cleaner and an arm of the immune system that used to deal with parasites and fighting off certain types of infections is sitting more idly and is not having enough to do essentially. So that part of the immune system used to fight off worms and parasites. That's how we evolved that part of the immune system. And now it's sitting idly because society has gotten cleaner. Right. Yeah. Um, so is this like an excuse for me to be filthy and not clean my apartment? <laughs> well, it's actually, I mean, like, I mean, at, now that you've had it, I think um, noth- uh, there's not a whole lot that can, uh, that can be changed except to try to control uh, the symptoms. But I think for the prevention of allergies, uh, people uh, do think that we're living in very clean environments. And as, as a young baby, if you're exposed to, to more animals, if you're exposed to um, less clean of the environment, uh, there are some people who believe that that may lead to prevention of allergies. As a young baby, I mean, the thing is being exposed to a less clean environment. Uh, there are some studies now that suggest that maybe that's helpful in preventing allergies down the road, but no conclusive studies 
are done yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when you say less clean, you mean like you don't mean like New York City subway pole. You no. Mean like <laughs> so actually, so actually, that's that's not. I mean, that's actually t- uh, counterproductive because there's a lot of people who live in the inner city and uh, rodent uh, and uh, cockroach uh, allergens are some of the worst offenders and cause a lot of inner city asthma. And um, so the thing is, what I meant by uh, less clean is if you're living in the farm. So, I mean, there was a study that was done a long time ago that showed that uh, in, in Europe that uh, kids raised on the farm end up having fewer uh, allergies later on than kids who grew up in the city. It's about being exposed to a myriad, a variety of different things, like um, having the dog lick your face. I mean, the dog played in the, the meadows and licked up all sorts of dirt, and now you're being exposed to a lot of these things, being exposed to to a lot of things out in the wild. I mean, that type of uh, non-sterile environment. Okay. Let's say I've already developed allergies and I want to feel better. What do I do? So whenever patients come to me, I always talk to them about the fact that treating allergies is actually quite simple. So I'm a simple man and I want to talk in simple terms. Um, It's really like a three-legged stool. The first most important thing is uh, environmental control. And What I mean by that is we want to decrease the exposure you have to allergens. Second to that is medications, and the third leg of the stool is allergy immunotherapy, which is uh, traditionally known as allergy shots and trying to re-educate the immune system uh, to tolerate something that you're allergic to. And, but we don't generally get to that unless you fail environmental control and medicine. So the first, and foremost is environmental control. And this is why people come to see the allergist because they get receive allergy testing so they know what they're allergic to. And uh, once we identify what you're allergic to, then we have to work on how do we decrease the exposure. So if you are allergic to allergens in the air, such as pollens, tree pollens, grass pollens, ragweed pollen, then one of the most important things is actually trying to filter some of those particles out of the air. So having an air purifier is essential in trying to reduce the exposure you have to aeroallergens. And what I mean by that is you have to close your bedroom windows because you don't want the outdoor uh, pollen and mold spores to be coming in. Mm -hmm. And we can't do much about what's going on on the outside, but we can control our own home environments. Okay, say you have a dog, but you're uh, you, you know, you're allergic to dogs. I don't know why you have a dog if you're allergic to dogs. But if you got an air purifier and put it in your bedroom, would that, would you feel better? Like, would you be able to handle it? Or So, again, um, I always tell patients that you have to, uh, you have to, purify the air, but you also want to reduce the source of the allergen. The air purifier is great, but it's no match for a constant onslaught of okay. pollens coming in. Just like if you have a dog, I never tell anyone to get rid of their dogs because oftentimes people will get rid of their spouses before they get rid of their pets. <laughs> so if I, uh, so, uh, I want to keep that patient, I never advocate for them to get rid of their pets. Mm-hmm. What I do tell them is that we, there are studies that show the more often you wash your dog, the less allergenic the dog is. But you have to wash it very often, and most people have a hard time complying with that. And the dog doesn't like it either. <laughs> yeah, the dog probably doesn't like it either, and washing cats is absolutely just, <laughs> I mean... Uh, a fool's uh, errand. Yeah, that's... Exactly. <laughs> so the thing is, what I always tell patients to do is keep the dog out of the bedroom. 
Okay. So the thing is, by keeping the dog out of the bedroom, you reduce the source of the allergen release in the bedroom, and then having the air purifier in the bedroom, you're able to then clean the air even more. So you have to do both in order to really reduce the, the load of allergen exposure. What is the most common allergy? Like, What are most people allergic to, or is it kind of spread out? So it really depends, and it depends on uh, the area of the country you live in and what type of environment you live in. I can't pinpoint to the most common uh, environmental allergen, but I can say that uh, dust mite is one of the most common uh, airborne allergens, and next to it is ragweed and timothy grass. Timothy grass. I didn't even know that was a thing. And then on the West Coast, you have pollen from the olive tree, And it's also seasonal as well. Are there any home remedies that actually work? Well, yes, uh, there are other things. So uh, air purifiers are wonderful for reducing allergens that stay for long periods of time in the air. So things like the pollens and and the moat spores and animal dander. In regards to dust mite, uh, there are several things that I always tell my patients. So if they test positive dust mite, Uh, What they need to do is they need to wash their uh, sheets and beddings in hot water on a weekly basis at least. Okay. And not on cold water, on 120 degrees hot water. Okay. So, uh, which a lot of patients are not doing, and especially now cold water washings are becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. And they really need to remove any types of stuffed animals and accessory pillows and things like that. Right. Because those things are Do you have a lot of patients with stuffed animals? Well, I do have kids. Oh, kids. Yeah, a lot of of children have a lot stuffed animals and actually they don't really want to part with them so it's a it's a it's a it's a tough discussion sometimes because uh, kids actually in clinic have gone into tears when I told them you can't keep fluffy around on the bed and um, so I think uh, those are the and if you do you have to wash fluffy on a weekly basis right just like you do with the beddings yeah They also sell hypoallergenic pillow covers and mattress covers as well. Mm -hmm. And what makes them hypoallergenic is the the threading is woven so closely together that when you look under a microscope, the dust mites can't pass through. Mm -hmm. Whereas in normal fabric, there are giant holes in between each thread. So if you look under the microscope, dust mites are passing through. And and also, if you're deciding on um, renovations in the home, Uh, you always want to choose uh, solid surfaces versus uh, carpets. Mm -hmm. And if you do have a rug in the room, uh, we generally advocate the removal of the rug because these are all surfaces that dust mites love to live in. And now for a message from our sponsors. Does your dog understand what you're saying? Can your dog tell when you're sad? Can nutrition have a positive impact on my dog's cognitive health? If you've ever asked yourself these questions, you should tune into the podcast Dog Smarts. It's hosted by leading author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare. And each episode brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. You can download and subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes. Check it out now. Ben Kaufman of Burano is here. You're the, you're the beverage director at Burano. But uh, you also have a, your family has a mushroom farm, is that right? Yeah. Where is the farm? Uh, The farm is mostly out of Pennington, New Jersey now. Okay. um, And then a little bit in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. What does a mushroom farm look like? Because I'm imagining it being very shady. Yeah, it looks very shady. No, um, (laughs) it depends on who's doing it. It depends on what stage it's at. Uh, When we first started, it was pretty much in his basement. 
and in the garage. Uh-huh. So it definitely looked pretty shady. <laughs> um, and it pretty much was me with a mask on in the back with a giant pot, like, brewing substrate. So it oh, looked wow. really, really shady. It was, yeah, it was yeah. like out of, like, a witch's lair. It, yeah, it right? looked or ridiculous. Or, like, a, you guys were, like, making potions, evil potions to sell. Exactly. How many different kinds of mushrooms that you can eat are there, like roughly? Are we talking like hundreds, thousands? Hundreds. Hundreds, um, okay. Possibly thousands. I mean, we're still discovering new strains of mushrooms. There's a certain classification called prime edible, um, and the prime edible strains are pretty much are considered the most delicious and the best benefits for you as well. Okay. So in that range, there's already still hundreds. The biggest challenge is discovering how to cultivate them. Um, a lot of mushrooms that we get are foraged, but when you can cultivate them, you have better control over the substrate and sort of the benefits that you get out of the mushrooms. Also, they're one of the best filters in nature. Okay. So to just go out and forage mushrooms, there's a huge well, scientific if you, risk. If you, I was to say, if you go out, there's that, but then also um, you could you can really kill yourself, can't you? I mean, those oh, yeah. things are, some of them are super poisonous. Some of them are ridiculously poisonous, and it's it's two different arts. I mean, that's a really important thing to know is that, like, foragers is one specialty and one art. Cultivator is something else. I'd feel much safer as a cultivator because I would know what I put there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's still risks with it. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a thing called spore poisoning. Okay. Uh, it, it just feels like a really bad case of the flu. You have it for like a day or so. Um, and it's just because when you, when you go to a mushroom farm like ours now has pretty much what look like warehouses or barns, you go in and there's at one time probably about 5,000 pounds of mushrooms fruiting. And each mushroom, which is actually the fruiting body of mycelium, produces spores constantly and pushes them out. And some of them, like lemon oysters, will produce thousands of spores a second and push them out. I've actually, I have seen this, and it is the craziest thing. I went to Costa Rica and went on a night hike. You know, we had, like, these lights or whatever, and uh, could look at these mushrooms that were growing, and they were just, like, it looks like it looked like they were steaming. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. So yours do that? uh, Yeah, they do that. I mean, it's, I've had spore poisoning probably around 35 times now. Oh, my God. um, To the point that lemon oysters, which are the most aggressive sporulator out of all cultivated mushrooms right now, I can feel the tickle on the back of my throat. Really? Oh, yeah. The second I get near lemon oysters, I feel it. Oh, so it could be like almost like an allergy or something. Or like it develops. develops develop it. Yeah. And you have like muscle aches. But as long as you wear a mask, like you won't feel anything out of it. I'm just more sensitive now to it because it's happened so many times. Um, But the biggest part is foragers go out and they pick these mushrooms and they'll say oh you know there's not a power plant for 100 miles so it's really clean it's wonderful Mm -hmm. but they don't soil sample there where they pick their mushrooms they have no idea what's actually there Mm -hmm. and you're talking about a product that is phenomenally efficient at filtering out heavy metals and poisons from Mm -hmm. soil and from living matter so and that it goes right into the fruit which is the mushroom. Right. So it'd be itself. like eating like an oyster out of the East River. Yeah. Which one wouldn't do. Hopefully not. So you have this amazing box of mushrooms with you. Some of these I think I recognize, but others of them are just, I didn't even know you could eat some of these. Yeah. What? So this is uh, maitake, the, also known as hen of the woods. Okay. And those um, are like little, they look like little ears or little like flat things. They're flat. A little bit, yeah. The thing why they're called hen of the woods is when you have darker coloration, like this one doesn't have too dark a coloration this time, so the oxygen and certain light was probably a little bit off when this one was fruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're really dark, they look like sort of turkey tails or the feathers on a chicken, so oh, hen of the woods. Oh, I see. 
And then these are lemon oysters. Okay. Lemon because they're a color. They're from the oyster family. They don't keep their color when they cook, which is really unfortunate because it's beautiful. <laughs> uh-huh. Same with the pink oysters. Yep. Yeah, the pink ones, are no, they look like little bits of lox. They look like a bunch of like layered chunks of lox. Funny enough, um, they taste a lot like salmon skin. No, really? Yeah. Wow. I, th- I've never even seen those in stores. Like, they're, they're a newer cultivated strain. It's been showing up more in the past few years. We were one of the first farms to really start to sort of cultivate it in this area. It's good for you. It's really hard to cultivate. It's a tropical strain. So there's a little bit more temperature control and sort of moisture control that you have to do for that one. But I used to make uh, fake salmon skin sushi rolls with it. Oh, that's such a great idea. I'd make the seaweed out of a whole bunch of mushrooms that I would sort of use with tapioca and turn it into fake seaweed. And then I would make salmon skin out of those and do little salmon skin rolls. Oh, so fun. What about this one that looks like, uh, it looks like a bunch of beads? Uh, This one is one of my favorites. This is golden enoki. Okay. Uh, Enoki is one of the more sort of popular families out of the Asian market. Uh, They put those in like ramen, if you get fancy ramen, right? Yeah, like honshimeshi, donshimeshi. But this one, if you smell it, it has one of my favorite smells. Am I going to get spore poisoning if I smell it? No. Whoa, what is that smell? That is yeast. That's like yeast and honeysuckle and mead and all those different things in it. I think there is actually some active yeast in the mushrooms. I've never really tested for it, but I use them to make a panna cotta dessert. Uh huh. And it could you just eat those though? You could. You could have just like a little raw one. Usually, any of those sort of the enoki and honshimeji families, they don't have to be cooked as much as other mushrooms do. Okay. And what about this one that looks like a um, hamster? That's my pet. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, that's lion's mane. That one actually, it tastes like crab. It's incredible. It has some of the highest moisture content of all mushrooms, so it's become really popular to whole roast it now. Uh-huh. It needs high heat when you cook it, but it's really good for you. When you go into a supermarket or your farmer's market or something, and you see all these crazy types of mushrooms, like everybody's used to the little white mushroom, button mushrooms, portobellos, maybe the baby bellows, that kind of thing, which are porcini, right? Those porcinis Those are, are baby yeah, bellows? Uh, baby bellows and portobellos are actually champignon de Paris, also uh-huh. known as porcinis, and they're pretty much either just undergrown or overgrown. Oh, okay. And then you just pay more for it. Okay, um, so if it's not one of those standard mushrooms, yeah. how do I know whether I need to cook them, not cook them? I'd almost always cook mushrooms Okay. if I find them. Uh, some are fine shaved and raw, but leave it to the chef that you're about to pay a bunch of money to to have a really wonderful meal for that one. Okay. Um, at home, par-cook them. I wouldn't add a lot of oil or fat when you're originally cooking them. Mushrooms have extremely high moisture content. Mm-hmm. And the classic sort of story of the chewy mushroom comes from not releasing the moisture properly. So as long as you sear it in high heat and you allow that moisture to come out, mushrooms concentrate into this wonderful, rich, complex flavors and have good texture to them Is as Is that well. why they're so good on pizza? Yeah. Oh. And just mushrooms and pizza totally work together. Which of, the, which of your weird mushrooms would be the best mushroom to put on pizza? Ooh, so hard. Uh, the trumpets are really good. We use the trumpets at our restaurant at Burano. Uh, we use the gray oysters, which have wonderful meaty flavor to them. And then we've used the maitake as well. Maitake have a lot of meaty flavor to them, and they actually have really high protein content. Too. And wait, which ones are the maitake? Oh, that's the, the one that looks like the uh, the feathers. Yep, okay. which is one of the most common ones in the market now. And for vegans and vegetarians, it's like your godsend. Why are certain mushrooms so expensive? Morels and uh, truffles? Yep. How? Why? Uh, they can't be cultivated. Uh, is okay. one part of it. 
and then uh, their life as well. All mushrooms don't really have that long of a shelf life to them. Another reason why I'd recommend par cooking them when you get them. But yeah, the expensive mushrooms, morels, only have a certain season and harvest time. Oh, okay. Uh, they're very hard to harvest. People also abuse them a lot. Uh, a lot of foragers don't know how to pick mushrooms. Mm -hmm. So when they pick them, they actually destroy the mycelium. They destroy the colony. And if you destroy the colony, then you don't they get can't anymore. grow anymore. Ah. But if you don't, uh, morels will grow in the same spot every year. Chicken of the woods will grow in the same spot every year. Uh, my in-laws have a place up in Vermont, and they have lobster mushrooms growing there. Mm -hmm. They have chanterelles growing there. Uh, my dog has taught himself how to forage for mushrooms I now. Bet, I bet he has. <laughs> it was the most adorable thing ever. I was like out foraging one morning with him, and he saw how happy I got when I found mushrooms, and then he just ran off and started finding them. Oh, that's amazing. That's it's, like accidentally training your dog because you're so excited about mushrooms. Yeah. That's it, so cool. Yeah, he's a little <laughs> mushroom nerd. He likes chanterelles, butter poach. But does he eat them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he doesn't give them to you. He goes and finds them. Oh, no, he doesn't like them raw. He wants them butter poached. And now let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. Are you thinking about popping the question at a sports game? Don't do that. But you know what you should do is check out Ratani. There's no simpler way to get the ring of your girlfriend's dreams. All of Ratani's rings are handcrafted in New York, and you shop online, and they'll ship it overnight to you or a Ratani jeweler in your neighborhood. You design a ring, they handcraft it, and you see it in the store for free. Plus, they offer no hassle returns. It's that easy. She'll love the ring, and you'll feel great about giving it to her, even at a sports game. And this month, they're even giving away a diamond. Just visit ritani.com slash useful, and you can check it out. Rappahannock Oyster Company is a family-owned oyster farm down in Richmond, Virginia, run by Travis and Ryan Croxton. Travis and Ryan stopped by the podcast the other day and showed us how to shuck oysters. The guys were a lot of fun, the oysters were tasty, and both our editorial assistant Cameron Johnson and I learned two ways to shuck an oyster, the hinge method and the lip method. When we listened to the segment later, though, we realized it was almost impossible to understand what the guys were doing without being able to see it. For example. You know, once you get into this, it's, it's actually a little easier with your hand because you can find that proper angle uh, a little bit easier uh, than you can on a table. Uh -huh. But if you're just starting this, try it on a table first. Yeah, and yeah. I'm always a table it. guy. So in advance of Memorial Day weekend, I'm just going to tell you guys how to shuck an oyster. But first, let's have Travis and Ryan explain who they are. Our great-grandfather actually started back in 1899, handed down to our grandfather, who did it up until he passed away in 91. Then there was about a 10-year break. Um, we didn't, our dads didn't go into it. We're cousins. Uh, our dads didn't go into it, and so the leases were coming up for renewal, our grandfather's leases once he had passed. You actually lease the river bottom from the state. So that was coming up for renewal, and our dads were going to let it go. And so, you know, we just kind of got a nostalgic urge and decided, you know, let's figure out how to grow oysters. We didn't know how, so which was a good time because we had to relearn. For those of you fancy enough to be shucking oysters at your barbecue this weekend, here's how to use the hinge method, which is probably the one you've seen most at oyster shucking companies. To start, you want to use an oyster knife, which is blunt so it won't stab you in the hand. And also, it won't crack the shell, which is a problem we had here at Popular Mechanics one time when we tried to shuck a bunch of oysters with a pocket knife. Don't do that. Once you've got the right knife, you want to stick the knife in the back of the oyster, where it grows out of whatever wall that it lives on. Wiggle your knife back and forth until you feel it pop in deep. At that point, sweep along the top to cut the top adductor muscle, which is what keeps the oyster closed. Then do the same thing along the bottom so the oyster is easy to suck out. Lift off the lid and enjoy. Enjoy. 
So here today on our testing table, we have two very special guests, Alex George, who is the sweatier of the guests, and Macoulay, who is uh, not wearing an undershirt. Yeah. So we're, we're testing an undershirt, but I'm the same way. I don't wear, I don't wear an undershirt, haven't for a long time. So we're going to see it. But you're wearing a shirt today. The one I'm wearing is called the Thompson Tee. It's 25 bucks. It's this Made in America undershirt with extra material on the underarms. So the idea is that it has a layer in there. It's a pen that they're, uh, they filed this technology that will, they say, keep you from getting pit stains and kind of keep that part. If that part of your body perspires excessively, it'll help keep that inside. Which so- is yeah. I'm going to say, first of all, thank you for doing this, because I sent out an email to the entire staff that basically said, whoever is the sweatiest. Confess your sweatiness. Confess your sweatiness and, yes. and wear this undershirt. And you were the brave soul who agreed to do it. Well, I'm interested, because we did another article a while ago where I was researching natural versus synthetic fibers. So, you know, Under Armour, that kind of a thing. And it turns out that cotton, like natural fibers, breathe better, that it... Uh, but it doesn't wick moisture the way you know, right, it gets, like, these soggy, do. Right. But the synthetic stuff, like Uniqlo Airs, I'm sure it's those kinds of things, they stink if you let them go for more than, you know, if you you have to wash them constantly. Matt, you talked about that on our camping episode, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that synthetic stuff stinks because it just traps those microbes and, like, you can't get rid of them. Yeah. So you can wash it and, like, smell good, and then you get them, like, heated up and going again on your body, and it's game over. I was reading that you can wash, to fix that, you can wash them in something, like vinegar, maybe? They say vinegar. Yeah. Or kill it off. There's probably other washes, but I don't know. I'm skeptical. Right. Yeah. That was something about this that appealed to me. It's, the one I'm wearing is a slim fit, so it's got uh, bamboo fiber and 5% spandex to kind of make it grip around your body a little bit. So it's natural fiber. And then the, the non-slim fit one is just 100% cotton. Uh, but That's the, so weird. Yeah. That's really weird that they would use completely different um, fabrics for the two different fits. I think that it's like uh, jeans that have a little bit of elastic in them. The oh, idea okay. is like that'll help it's it It's still bamboo grip versus it. cotton? Right. I think if I, a little bit of research, they react similarly in terms of retention and in terms oh. of elasticity. Oh, interesting. Um, but the whole idea is that it's uh, it, they chose deliberately chose natural fiber. But the main difference is if I showed you the underneath the arm, there's this square patch of extra kind of padded fabric. It's, Do you have like an underarm diaper right now? It, I, Essentially, this it, is what I'm gathering. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah show us your pit. Yeah. Yeah. Just take off your shirt. Oh Lovely. god, like that, like that looks like overstitched, like diaper under your arm is it can you feel the yes. difference i'm trying i've tried to get used to it and you it's can't impossible. quite no that and seems like more i would rather have sweaty wet pits than that thing under my arm i gotta admit i'm i'm like vain in that you ever see like like how marlon brando looks in streetcar new desire with like a white shirt on yeah. or like the classic white you know undershirt yeah, yeah. it can look kind of cool it's impossible you know this thing looks like like a technical piece of like, like you, you know have a medical it, condition. It reminds me of tidy whities Like the seam there in your yeah. armpit is like the same kind of seam. Oh God, Alex! A- <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, could you smell that from over there? No, no. It just oh, it looks horrific. It looks yes. so terrible. Like, it's yeah. It's, I'm, uh, I'm sorry for having done this. To it you. does feel like uh, shirt equivalent of an orthotic shoe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like it's just uh, it's a little bit dorky, but. All right, so and then all right, in terms of the functionality, you shouldn't care because you're just wearing it underneath right, the shirt. Underneath, so who, who's going to notice? It does work in that. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I just I sweat I on my underarms, and it keeps it from getting to your shirt. Of course, not not too much better than just a cotton undershirt like I wore, you know, years ago. 
but the way it kind of works in practice, the way it works, if you have it flush against your skin, you don't smell, you know, their underarm. But if you kind of like pull the padding part just slightly away from it, you get a huge whiff of it. You get a huge oh, really? hit of it. So it's kind of, I think it works by kind of containing it in there. It's not like it pulls it in and then just absorbs it or makes it like. That was my question. It's like, okay, so shouldn't they've activated charcoal or something? Blocking, in there? It would yeah. make sense to do yeah. something like Sil- that. Microbial silver or something, right? Because mm-hmm. it's blocking all the sweat. But like, where the hell is that stuff going? Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so it works, but... Uh, it really is like an armpit diaper. Could you wring out that thing, like, at the end of the day and just have, like, all your accumulated sweat? I'm not that bad. That. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done in it? Have you run? Have you gone running yeah. or, like, worked out in it? I attempt to make myself sound cool again. We were test riding motorcycles a few days ago, and I wore it out in, you know, under leather in the hot sun, uh, yeah, sweating a whole lot. I very sheepishly asked people around me if they could notice anything because i typically I, that's gotta be tough i'm not proud to say me. excuse me do i stink excuse yeah me. But it was, i mean is the concern the smell or just like the wet marks the wet marks is the primary thing yeah and then the smell is kind of it's also that's part of it too and you did you still get wet marks on this no it's no. completely it absorbs it completely okay. uh and herein lies the other thing is that so it's 25 bucks for each one yeah. That every I've tried like the Polo Smart Technical T-shirt. I know this is a different league. Yeah. The one that you know uh, measures your heart rate and all that stuff. Uh, and that one's like a two hundred and fifteen or two hundred fifty. I can't remember. Yeah. When you have just one of these items that you're supposed to work out in and get sweaty in, just you, you can't wear impractical. them twice. It's and you're just like gro- yeah, completely. So unless you can you know say uh, one hundred twenty-five dollars to get five of these for every day of the week, you know that's uh, that's how it goes. But if it doesn't, if we, if it's not something that you like, and if you feel like you're wearing like a tidy whitey diaper, I, I could see twenty five dollars being a little much, regardless of where it's made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I don't want to completely dump on these guys because, like, and some people like legit have like like hyperhidrosis problems, mm-hmm. and so yeah. it's like probably great for that. And it, it, like you said, it's almost like an orthotic for like if you got that problem, you need it. Well, and right. it does sweat. I so I have a lot of white. I wear a lot of white in the summer. Yeah. At white dresses or whatever, and even if I'm not sweating a ton, whether it's just from your deodorant or whatever, you get like the slight. Once you get it, especially something dry cleaned, mm-hmm. you get something dry cleaned and it'll turn yellow. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like this invisible stain that they dry clean it and then it just turns yellow and you have this like yellow line right along like the sleeve, mm-hmm. and then you feel you're like that's disgusting. Like I don't want my clothes, my white clothes to look like that. So mm-hmm. if you're wearing white dress shirts. In the summer, I could maybe see this being a possible solution to keep your really nice shirts nice for longer. Yeah. Um, but it seems like there's got to be somebody doing it better. Yeah, I mean, there's deodorant and, and, and perspirant. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, air um, conditioning, that's another option. Yeah. Okay, why does one wear, as a, as a female, why does one wear an undershirt? What is the point? My brother doesn't wear undershirts. I don't think my stepdad does, and n- no one I've ever dated has worn them. So yeah. I don't know who does. You know, there's a little tidbit. Um, I think it's like in whenever that Clark Gable movie came out, he's like on the road with that girl, and he like takes off his shirt, and he's not wearing an undershirt, and like the cotton industry, they say like went like had like shockwaves, like it collapsed almost because men immediately were like, "Oh my God, we don't have to wear undershirts." Clark Gable doesn't wear one because he Clark Gable wasn't wearing undershirt in that movie. Yeah, and so like I think it's just like a holdover from like you know days when men dress. When Stuffy they were or differently, trousers but they, and yeah. pantaloons. And yeah, that. yeah, it doesn't quite feel right. But I can I can sympathize with the point that the founder is making when some interviews he's done, where it's like, 
I have leaned back in my chair and like gone to put my hand over my head. I'm like, oh no, wait, hold on. <laughs> I got, you know, I'm showing some pit stains. And it's, no matter what, you can't possibly look cool with pit stains. So I kind of, I understand where he's coming from in that, uh, that direction, but yeah, I don't know. It's, um, right. Um, so as we always end this, I, I guess your answer is probably pretty clear, but would you buy this? Uh, I would not buy it, but, um, well, you a, less, a less vain man than me would probably uh, be okay with it. Right. And Macaulay, what would you rather wear than this? Uh, I would rather wear uh, just like a straight-up tank top or something, like in public. Uh, yeah. yeah. Are you anti-tank top? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should have an entire episode that's just Macaulay's things, things Macaulay hates to wear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the city, I mean, there's like a time and a place. If you're going like full douchebag Florida in Florida, completely permissible tank okay. top. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, I think this is why I don't understand the tank top rules is yeah. because I grew up in Florida. So right. pretty much if you're not, you know, if you're wearing anything, <laughs> if you're wearing clothing and not riding on back of an alligator, I'm like, oh, he looks good. <laughs> <laughs> so classy. What a, what a guy. Thanks for listening to our show, guys. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. As always, check out our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think about what we're doing. If you want to read more about allergies, you can check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. It's more what you love. We're all the same people. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. Some of my girls, since you've gone